Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amber Nickel, the host of the channel. And today we are going to be speaking with Jacqueline Granick about her publication, International Jewish Humanitarianism in the Age of the Great War, which came out last year with Cambridge University Press. The book also recently won the National Jewish Book Award for writing based on archival material. Um, So congratulations on that, Jacqueline. Jacqueline is a senior lecturer, which is similar to an associate professor in modern Jewish history at Cardiff University in the United Kingdom. She completed her PhD at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies and was a postdoctoral researcher at Oxford, supported by several research grants, including a Fulbright. Jacqueline, welcome to the channel. I'm really excited to discuss this text with you today. Thank you. I, I want to start out with kind of the, the question I always start out with, and that's what motivated you to research and write international Jewish humanitarianism in the age of the Great War? That is um, a question that has evolved. An answer to that question has, has evolved over time. Um, but when I first started out, um, I would say I went to... Geneva, Switzerland, where I did my PhD, um, in order to study international social movements and human rights. Um, And as I was in a history department, I started to try to think about the way in which human rights and humanitarianism and international social movements had histories. And because I had already studied Yiddish as an undergraduate, mainly out of interest, um, I realized that I would be able to access the Jewish past in this way. So I started trying to come up with various ways of thinking about combining international history and modern Jewish history. And I landed on this era because I think that the Great War was a 
an enormous event in modern history, which we tend to not think that much about today, probably just because World War II was even bigger and more recent. Um, and I realized that there was a whole Jewish story in here that was very little told, also probably because of the Holocaust. I think that's uh, one of the good, great things about your book, actually, is that you talk about the ways in which World War II overshadows World War I in many ways, thinking about this. So can you please talk a little bit about the circumstances surrounding World War I, uh, which you show to be a major inflection point in Jewish history? Yes. So I call it the Great War because... At the time, it was the Great War rather than the first of two major world wars within the space of a generation. Um, when we look at a map of Europe, that map looks more or less like the peace map drawn up in 1919. World War I was when the major empires started to fall apart and the map was redrawn in a very persisting way. And that, World War, so World War I has this immense long-standing effect of geopolitical organization, which affects everyone in those regions' lives that we tend not to really think about. Um, when it comes to Jewish history, um, Jews were were basically living right along the Eastern Front of this war. So if our standard narrative sitting in the West, even as Jews, tends to be mostly around national patriotic myths and Jews serving in the army, actually there's this whole story of the Eastern Front, where from the Baltics through East Central Europe, down into the Balkans and into the what was the Ottoman Empire, Jews are in the crossfire. They're, um, and like other civilians, um, they are subjected to uh, uh, battling armies, paramilitary groups, hunger, disease. Um, but there's also explicitly Jewish, anti-Jewish violence that takes place within this. Um, most people know uh, about uh, the pogroms of 1918 to 21 that happened in Ukraine, but it, there were other major instances of anti-Jewish violence happening earlier in the war, not just in Ukraine. Um, and I would also argue that those pogroms were part of what I call the age of the Great War, rather than thinking of the Great War narrowly as starting in 1914 and ending in 1918. Um, there is a scholarship coming out about how the Great War really can be understood as persisting several years past 1918. Um, and then at the end of the war, 
there's all of these sweeping political opportunities that come to light that might help Jews, such as the Balfour Declaration and the possibilities of a, a Jewish homeland in Palestine, and the minorities treaties, which make it seem like maybe there would be some hope of having um, an autonomous Jewish cultural life in the new states of East Central Europe. Um, but alongside those, I would argue another major thing that happens in the Jewish world in World War One is the rise of American Jewish leadership through its major humanitarian project. And let me also add, because um, I forgot to list it earlier, the, the Russian Revolution also provided some major political answer to um, the struggles of uh, Jews in modern Europe by emancipating them um, and showing the possibility of a life um, as as Soviet, uh, full Soviet citizens. Um, so, so this moment, this long moment, um, was really probably the most important time in modern Jewish history, second only to the Holocaust. So I think that uh, leads us to maybe one of the largest questions surrounding your book, maybe the question that your book seeks to answer. And that is, how is it that we should, as scholars and as thinkers, situate and understand the importance of international humanitarianism in Jewish history? I think that what my book really tries to argue is that while Jewish humanitarianism, which really came of age and was invented in some sense in this moment, was it was much like other forms of humanitarianism, um, which I'll maybe get to talk about later, um, in Jewish history, it was not merely a short-term reaction in which monies went from, sh from strangers to, and donors to other strange recipients. Jewish humanitarianism was characterized through and through by the diaspora nature of Jewish life, which meant that donors and the organization and the recipients all felt themselves to be somehow connected. And it was a project of Jewish solidarity. And eventually, as the years wore on, and Jews were still struggling to find their footing in post-First World War society, um, Jewish humanitarianism started to take on some of the roles that we might now associate with that of the social welfare state, or might alternatively associate with international development projects. Um, it was Jewish humanitarianism that was sort of this glue holding the Jewish world together, raising money from Jews in the West who were 
more secure and sometimes more financially comfortable to keep Jewish life and culture going in its precarious state wherever wherever it existed. Um, and doing so much more than providing emergency food and medical relief, but creating a restoring and also creating a new um, Jewish culture and um, political and social projects in this period. So I want to now kind of start working through some of the, the meat of your book. And uh, we'll kind of do it chronologically for the, the readers that are listening and thinking about picking up the text. So you start off with, I think, um, a really interesting analysis of the ways in which American Jews worked alongside and in response to an, uh, other American humanitarian efforts that were occurring during and after World War I. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how Jews interacted with other American efforts and why they functioned in this manner? Yeah. Um, so my book really shows that the rise of American Jewish humanitarianism was really connected to the place of America in this global war. And for the first three years until 1917 of the First World War, America was the largest neutral power. And, you know, much like people are feeling today in the context of the war in Ukraine, Americans were very aware of the war in Europe and they wanted to do something. And neutrality afforded them the opportunity to undertake humanitarianism. And it was really the first time that the technology was in place that America had the standing that it did to kind of offer this huge humanitarian undertaking to war-torn Europe. Um, so American humanitarianism as a whole kind of came into being, especially in its international form, um, in response to the First World War and in the, in the condition of America being a neutral power. Um, and that, that, that created a range of responses and organizations, which included the American Red Cross, which had previously existed, but had rarely undertaken international work. Um, and that also included this new organization run by future President Herbert Hoover called the um, American Relief Administration. Um, and uh, then a number of ephemeral and small organizations taken up, created by universities or by towns or by women's groups or other charitable societies. And then there were a few organizations that were organizations of, dia of the diaspora in the U.S., uh, Polish diaspora, um, Near Eastern diaspora, and uh, the Jewish diaspora. So um, the 
American Jews uh, created the Joint Distribution Committee in response, direct response to the war, in the same way that all of their American peers were also creating humanitarian organizations in direct response to the war. And the Joint Distribution Committee, from its beginning, really needed to rely on American state power to do any of the work it wished to do because wartime, the wartime landscape made it really difficult to function otherwise. Plenty of American Jews, often recent immigrants, would try to just do things on their own, like send money overseas. But between censors and failures of the international banking system and recipients being themselves refugees, it was impossible to actually reach the intended destination. So the, the Joint Distribution Committee was able to work with these other American humanitarian organizations to collectively move cash overseas and have them be negotiated through America's neutral neutral power status. Um, and during before 1918, that really mostly looked like cash transfers, um, but also... Um, American Jews were able to put some actual supplies on naval ships that went to uh, Palestine and were able to pass the British blockade. Um, so there were there was a, an immense benefit to working with um, other American humanitarian associations, and especially those which were closest to the state and could um, be part of the kind of neutral American war effort. So I think that you highlighted in your last answer the, I think, largest organization that you address in your text. And that's the Joint Distribution Community, uh, Committee, or the JDC. And it really, I think, dominates your story. In addition to facilitating uh, these transfers for individuals, what other roles did the JDC play in this emerging Jewish humanitarian landscape? So... One of the things that led me to this project was that when I was looking at this American humanitarian effort overall, I would see these kinds of lists of organizations and how much money they were giving and where they were going. Um, and the Joint Distribution Committee was always on that list. But one of my first suspicions when I decided to work on Jewish humanitarianism was that I, I had this hunch that the JDC, I mean, it was just one organization and typically Jewish organizations do not do a good job of working together. Um, and so I really wanted to investigate a wider field of Jewish humanitarian organizations. But I was surprised to discover um, that really, in some sense, previous historiography or even like brief archival information seemed to be correct. The, the, the truth is that the Joint Distribution Committee really dominated the Jewish humanitarian landscape. Again, because of the relationship it was able to establish with the um, American state with 
due to the importance of America and its neutral status in the First World War, and due to a very unusual moment in American Jewish history where, because American Jews were so concerned about the crisis happening in the Jewish homeland and heartland of Eastern Europe, they were able to set aside their differences and come together as a community, probably you could say for the first time, and create this one organization. And the reason the word joint is in the title of the organization is because originally it really was a joint organization. It was meant to kind of be an umbrella of other Jewish organizations. And for a long time, it really in many ways functioned as an umbrella with different constituencies having careful representation on its um, committees. Um, And it really, really worked hard as an organization to maintain itself as the Jewish humanitarian organization, especially when it came to America, um, and to not let other Jewish projects uh, derail it uh, or or challenge it. Usually uh, when other projects arose, the JDC would find a way to absorb those projects into their joint committee. Um, And... um, It, however, did not see that it should be the only organization or a longstanding organization in the regions in which it was working in Europe. So what it tried to do was restore pre-existing Jewish organizations or to create new ones if previous ones didn't exist or to bring several organizations that were previously in conflict with one another into a working relationship with one another. So the JDC had this idea that Jews should work jointly together to solve this crisis. And they used every means of incentive they could to get their recipients to be self-sufficient, to take charge of the humanitarian aid, but also to do it in a way in which it was it, it forced them to work cooperatively with each other. So as a result of World War One, the globe faced one of the largest refugee crises to date. How did Jews and humanitarian organizations adapt to and respond to this refugee crisis? Yes. Um, Peter Gattrell's work on World War One and refugees as a kind of, especially focused on um, Russia, but more recently um, thinking about World War One as an instigator of a global refugee crisis has been really important um, in kind of setting out those global stakes. Um, what one chapter of my book does is focus on this refugee crisis in its Jewish dimensions. Um, And one of the things I talk about is how in this era, the, like a mass refugee crisis was sort of the, 
created for the first time um, with some kind of hope that these refugees might somehow be saved or or helped in some way and kept alive. Um, it's difficult to even be able to count how many refugees there were because it depends on how you would count and how you would define a refugee. Like are internally displaced people refugees or not? And what if the borders changed rather than the person changing place. Um, so it, there's all these kind of naughty problems that come up, but the Joint Distribution Committee at the time uh, in you know 1918, so this wasn't even the end of the refugee crisis, but counted over um, a million Jewish refugees that were created as a result of the war. Um, and it, Although when most people think of Jewish refugees, they tend to think in the modern period of that mainly being something that happened in Central Europe starting in the 30s um, with the rise of the Nazi party and its um, anti-Semitic decrees. But in fact, um, the Jewish refugee crisis started in World War One, and it had never been solved. And some say that the mere presence of Jewish refugees in important uh, metropoles in in uh, Central Europe might have um, contributed to the anti-Semitism there because they were they were at the margins of society, barely hanging on. Um, and there were just so many Jews in this position throughout the interwar period. The JDC didn't really know exactly how to respond to this and tried to respond basically by minimizing the scope of the problem. It was so overwhelming and was so difficult to do without state power. I mean, the JDC couldn't open borders um, that all the JDC could really do was try to provide basic humanitarian relief to um, during serious crises and then try to help Jewish refugees kind of settle into the places where they ended up. And what the JDC was basically hoping was that if kind of illegally settled refugees could manage long enough wherever they were, eventually they'd sort of just be integrated into wherever they were in a real way. And so the JDC didn't want to draw attention to them by creating a kind of category of forever refugees. So they would shift refugees from their refugee assistance into just kind of the regular assistance programs pretty quickly. But other Jewish organizations really felt that this was an inappropriate response that was too apologetic. And Hayes, for example, um, was more intent on working to open borders or to help um, Jews complete um, immigration paperwork uh, to advocate a at the highest levels of government where they could uh, to 
to increase the quotas or at least fill the quotas to their capacity um, and to find possible new areas of settlement for Jews in other places of the world um, so that Jews could leave. And they courted serious political controversy in so doing, um, which is mainly why the JDC avoided that approach. Um, But the JDC appreciated the work that Hyas was doing um, and and supported it as well. Uh, So yeah, the refugee crisis was a very difficult um, and naughty problem that essentially they failed in responding to and but it was also a task much bigger than really any non-state organization might be expected to carry out effectively required a political solution. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So I'm combining a, a couple chapters here, but uh, I read them collectively and I think they really stood out as my favorites. Uh, you examine the relationships between social medicine, humanitarianism, resistance, and social welfare. How do these things really come together and intersect in the aftermath of World War One? As my book starts to move away from the years most typically associated with the First World War, um, even past 1921, um, I start to really get into exactly the, que- the the issues that you bring up here. It's It's really interesting to me that even well into the 20s, these Jewish organizations thought of themselves as war response organizations and humanitarian organizations, but they were slowly transforming themselves into something that we today might call international development organizations, or at the time was probably more inspired by the idea of a social welfare state, which was um, something that was happening um, as states became social welfare states uh, in the West. Um, But in the Jewish case, this was sort of a social welfare state uh, in diaspora. Um, And so rather than kind of reacting to a refugee crisis or uh, food shortages um, and just kind of throwing whatever materials they could and cash at these problems um, and having it be very kind of chaotic and no 
and you know wartime kind of dis disarray of information and people and logistics um it, the JDC sort of switched to a longer term planning where they sought to rehabilitate Europe's and the Middle East's Jews um, and had these kind of much more planned projects, which were thought through and um, were often done in a kind of small way and then tried to scale them up. Um, and they did these projects, um, one on uh, health, public health, you could say, or social medicine. Um, another, there was another project or like theme around um, children. And then there was another around impoverishment and labor and work conditions. Um, and I... They, but they, you know, they, um, they still thought of themselves as humanitarian and war organization. So, for example, um, in the public health project, it started out as a response to an epidemic of typhus, which was raging along the Eastern Front. And just Despite the fact that there's a lot more historical attention to the flu in 1918 um, along the Eastern Front, um, typhus was clearly even more of a concern because that's what dominates um, all the discussions about health at that moment and dominated um, efforts made by the new League of Nations in the public health arena. Um, and so the JDC was trying to kind of help and work with the League of Nations and with the U.S. military and local authorities in Poland um, and in Ukraine when they could uh, to try to stop the spread of typhus, treat Jews who were sick, um, provide uh, sanitary um, materials like soap and uh washing machines so that people could keep themselves clean and prevent the spread of lice, which is what uh, spread um, typhus itself. Um, and that is, I mean, it, it was not especially effective um, because it was really difficult to coordinate all of those things in the immediate and waning years of a war. Um, but what it did do was kind of create this um, idea that there were a lot of Jewish health professionals, nurses and doctors, um, and Jews could undertake public health initiatives amongst themselves um, and train themselves and improve their living spaces and their sanitary measures. And none of this would be particularly politically controversial. So they could kind of build uh, Jewish, Jewish society through social medicine um, and organize through that. And although by the mid-20s, um, local Jewish organizations were running most of these programs, um, the 
the TOES and the OSE are maybe acronyms some of the listeners might be familiar with. Um, it's the joint is kind of what provided the JDC, um, also known as the joint. The joint is what uh, provided that kind of crucial bridge to kind of get Jewish organizations through the war, through the typhus pandemic, and then organizing anew um, these Jewish social medicine uh, organizations um, to, to, to survive in the interwar period. I think one of the threads that you kind of pull through uh, large swaths of the book is the role of anti-Semitism in shaping Jewish humanitarianism. So can you tell listeners a little bit today about how anti-Semitism in various contexts affected Jewish humanitarianism throughout this period? One of the things I do constantly throughout the book is think through Jewish humanitarianism in comparison with mainstream or other forms of humanitarianism. And having, although anti-Semitism appears in various guises throughout the book, um, one of the things that I, 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 or the thing that I would conclude overall about anti-Semitism and Jewish humanitarianism is that that we ta- that that we as Jewish studies scholars often forget because we are always dealing with anti-Semitism in the background is that other humanitarian organizations did not have to deal with the baggage of anti-Semitism. Jewish humanitarianism was addressing a war that everyone else was addressing plus anti-Jewish violence. It was also having to look over its shoulder all the time and worry that the humanitarian work was not just kind of helping people stay alive, which was the goal, but somehow inflaming anti-Semitism in the region's where it was functioning. Um, it meant that um, it forced uh, Jewish organizations to have to make choices about what what um, what they were willing to say and how they were going to say it to the US government for fear of anti-Semitism within the US government or creating anti-Semitism where it didn't exist or creating anti-Semitism amongst the American uh, populace if they tried to advocate for more open borders. Um, and, you know, I found in the um, uh, State Department's archives that, you know, the State Department was incredibly anti-Semitic in, in this moment not you know not just congress that passed quota laws but you know also um the state department itself and speaking of those quota laws i mean there was legislation that was effectively anti-semitic trying to keep the jews that it might be helping 
out and creating new kinds of problems because a refugee crisis couldn't be solved if um, Jews couldn't get into um, any of the countries that they would like to go to. I So, you know, there was just a huge way in which anti-Semitism affected Jewish humanitarianism and shaped it. And, you know, every single conversation in any bit of the JDC, even when it's not stated explicitly, clearly has worries about anti-Semitism in the background. Um, Just every choice that they made, everything that they did was always kind of a calculus of like, which thing that we do will cause the least amount of anti-Semitism or how do we reduce anti-Semitism with humanitarianism? How do we accomplish our work when our, our partner organizations are potentially or certainly anti-Semitic? Um, and they just had to always think about it. And, and it was, the answers were never clear. So, I mean, without looking at the archives, you might not realize how much actual real anti-Semitism did affect it. But you can see, you know, in again, in the State Department, in the the papers of the Red Cross, that that there really was um, uh, like a lot of, of um, difficulties that Jewish humanitarianism faced that any of its peer organizations simply did not have to deal with. Um, it's remarkable how much the joint and other Jewish humanitarian organizations were able to do given these barriers, really. Um, And also remarkable um, how under the radar in some sense it all was, but that was a choice. It was intentionally under the radar because there were worries that if Jews proclaimed success more loudly, Um, or not even success, but just work, um, that that work would be compromised. It's a little bit outside of, I think, the purview of your text itself. But one of the primary geographic regions that you are looking at is, of course, Ukraine. And you are dealing with topics of humanitarianism. So I'm wondering if you might share with listeners today maybe some lessons you think that folks can learn from Jewish humanitarianism in the age of the Great War um, that they might be able to apply or think about within the context of contemporary humanitarian crises in Ukraine? As I said briefly earlier in the interview, in the Great War moment, as today, regular people in democratic countries, especially countries not directly involved in the fight fighting, wanted to do something and they felt that they should do something. And they felt that their leaders should do something. And the thing that everyone always arrives at, the regular civilian, the regular person arrives at is humanitarianism. It's I would argue that humanitarianism has really become a main pillar of modern warfare starting in the First World War. Um, But we still don't really think about it analytically in that way. 
And if the media is all about, mainstream media is all about um, reporting on the ground, and then the Western response being reported is all about the military response and nuclear deterrence, coverage is really lacking in terms of thinking about what the regular person all across the West is doing and what it means, what humanitarianism means, what it can accomplish, what its limits are, who might be the most effective humanitarian actors to donate to or support. So I think that, I mean, there's many different things that my book shows that humanitarianism can be or do, but part of what is missing um, right now is a kind of understanding that um, violence in this region and humanitarianism uh, co-evolved. So humanitarianism is very bound to violence in Ukraine. Um, And that uh, diaspora organizations, in in the case of my book, Jews, but in the case of now, it could be Jews and Ukrainian diaspora organizations and other uh, diasporas connected to uh, the state of Ukraine. Um, Diaspora organizations are an incredible humanitarian uh, resource and actor because they have the direct knowledge, the connections, um, basically everything that one needs to conduct uh, successful humanitarian organizations uh, or conduct to conduct a successful humanitarian operation, um, which always combines a kind of need for grassroots and state level and international um, authority and ability to navigate. Um, And so I think we should be doing a lot more to kind of seek out those diaspora organizations and encourage our states um, and other citizens to support them. And then also advocate for more state-backed humanitarian support along many ways, because we have the technology these days to keep people alive and to solve a lot of problems rather than um, create more war through more violence. Thank you for sharing that. I think uh, that's something that all of us should be thinking about pretty systematically ways that we can participate in humanitarian efforts in response to what's going on in Ukraine. Jacqueline, we have taken up quite a bit of your time today. I want to wrap up our interview with my traditional closing question on New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Right now, I'm helping to lead um, a project funded by the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council um, on Jewish country houses, which we are, so we are basically thinking about um, as a project, which I'm doing with multiple other academics and heritage professionals uh, and country house museums, Jewish museums. Um, We're thinking about um, the ways in which uh, essentially rural Jewish owned 
palaces in the 19th and early 20th centuries um, fit into the um, the urban and rural divide and class and cultural philanthropy and art um, in in Europe. Um, and I'm particularly um, working on ideas having to do with uh, politics and liberalism and uh, philanthropy and also on gender. And I'm planning to uh, write my second book in the context of this project um, and in with specific focus on um, gender. So my, my second book is provisionally titled um, Human Rights, Jewish Women, um, Internationalism from the Salon to the NGO. So I'm um, looking forward to working more on that now, although I've just gotten published in the last few days uh, and a special issue I edited of the Journal of Modern Jewish Studies on um, gender and Jewish internationalism. So I hope some of uh, the listeners here might also want to check out that the articles in that special issue. I know that that's probably what I'm getting ready to do right now, then I uh, look for that special issue. Thank you for joining us on New Books in Jewish Studies today, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for having me here. And for the listeners out there, if today's discussion piqued your interest, which I hope it did, you can pick up a copy of Jacqueline Granick's International Jewish Humanitarianism in the Age of the Great War directly from Cambridge University Press, or you can always order it from your local bookstore. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.